John 2, start at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Will you bow with me in prayer? Father, we ask for your power to be made manifest as your word is ministered this morning. We confess our need for it. Forgive us, Father, where we have relied on our own wisdom. Forgive us where we have turned a blind eye to things in our life that are displeasing to you. And this morning, Father, we ask for your Spirit to work in our lives that, even though it may be painful, tables will be overturned. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. It was a cold Thursday, January night. I was in my senior year at Carson Newman College. And it's a night that has haunted me for many reasons. One primary reason. It was intramural basketball season. It was in full swing. And as the author said, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. You can only imagine intramural basketball at a good Baptist college. We were playing my team's name was Lamar Mundane and the Moondogs. I'm not even going to try to explain. We were playing a team that had a friend of mine. His name was Melvin. I'd known Melvin for four years. Melvin, at best, let's just say, was a very verbal person. Melvin could talk. He talked a lot. And it didn't stop on the basketball court. Now, I consider myself a pretty easygoing guy. I like playing. You know, I don't play anymore because I'm an old man now, but that's another story. But at that time, I was into it, and I had realized, you know, I'm, I'm not what I used to be, but still loved playing. And that night, the game was heated, and Melvin was talking. The game was heated, and Melvin kept talking. The game was close, and Melvin kept talking. Till at some point, at some point... He got under my skin and in my mind. And before I could stop myself, I said, no, that's not accurate. I shouted at the top of my lungs, echoing still in the still located above the gym, 
Melvin, shut up. It was not nice. It was not the Christian thing to do. And I promise you at that moment, everything in the gym went quiet as people picked up their basketballs and looked and asked, was that Mark Herod? Because I was president of the Baptist Student Union. I was president of the State Baptist Student Union. And I was generally a quiet, mild, and meek person until Melvin kept talking. Now the only reason I say that is because that moment of outburst caught everyone by surprise. It wasn't what they expected. And by the way, I did go to Melvin's room that night and apologize. But because it was so contrary to how my character was perceived, people were in shock. Just like they were in shock over what Jesus does here. You see, this is not the nice Jesus with the golden halo around his head that walks into the temple that day. This is Jesus who by his action turns heads. This is not mild, meek Jesus carrying a lamb gently on his shoulders. This is passionate, powerful Jesus throwing the sheep out of the temple area. And because of that, it's unsettling. John chapter 2 is a chapter where, where John focuses upon the power of Jesus to transform and how because He is the Messiah, He transforms things. The first transformation was water into wine. And it's a miracle that turns heads because we are saying, Wow, that's just cool. That's neat. But the second transformation, what he does here makes us turn our heads and say, Whoa, this is provocative. This is Jesus doing something totally unexpected. This is Jesus showing that He is the Messiah and that things will not be the same. This morning as we approach this text, we're going to approach it in two ways. First, I want us to dive into it. We're going to walk through it to understand what this means historically and biblically. Why Jesus did this action. And then the second part is this. I want us to deal with the application of it. I want us to see this is not just an act that Jesus did in history that we can be content to step away from and study like it's a picture on a wall. No. We have to ask ourselves, Jesus, what are you doing in my life? This is a portrait we must step into and allow Jesus to do His work in us. John begins by telling us the Passover of the Jews was at hand, so Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. John's gospel records three instances where Jesus goes to Jerusalem each at Passover. The other gospels only contain one. It's not because Jesus didn't go, but remember, a gospel is not the same as a biography. A gospel is written to make a theological point. So for John, he wants us to start out with the Passover in mind. Remember, he's already introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God who will be sacrificed for our sins just like the Passover Lamb was sacrificed on behalf of the children of Israel. So John wants us to see that continually. So now Jesus goes up. To Jerusalem. Now the best way to think of this, of what this must have been like, is to think of the pictures you have seen of Times Square on New Year's Eve. 
how the people are packed in like sardines. Now you have a picture of what Jerusalem was like at Passover. Hundreds of thousands of people traveling in to celebrate this event. This was shoulder to shoulder. This was, was busy. There was an energy in the air, an excitement going on. And we find that in the temple. Now, in the temple is a phrase referring to the temple complex. There are two words in the New Testament for temple. One is the word naos that refers to the holy of holies, the inner sanctum where God's presence himself was said to dwell. But the other word, the word used here, is for the temple complex. It's what included what was known as the court of women, where women could only come so far. It refers to the holy place, and then it refers to the holy of holies. Those three things in Herod's temple that Jesus walked into was the size of two football fields. It was huge. And surrounding that complex was the court of Gentiles. We're talking about a very large area. So more than likely, as Jesus goes in and he begins casting them out, it's not in the entire court of Gentiles because that would have covered acres. More than likely, it was in one section. And that's why Jesus did this twice. You see, John records this instance at the very beginning of his gospel. And then the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, recorded at the end. Different purposes. Jesus cleared the temple twice, and it's not unreasonable to think he does it once at the beginning, a small section of the temple. Then, three years later, guess what? Things have reverted back to the way they were, so Jesus cleanses it again. And the other three Gospels focus on that one to show the final straw that broke the back of those leaders so that Jesus was crucified. So Jesus goes into this court of the Gentiles, this large area, you can see it's become a marketplace. Now the people who are selling were offering a service. Gentiles who traveled at a great distance may not have had the means to carry with them the oxen, the sheep, the pigeons for sacrifice so they could buy them there. They didn't carry with them the temple money so it had to be exchanged. But however, no matter their motives, good or ill, they shouldn't have been there. Jesus clears house. Tables overturned. Livestock chased out. And he utters these words in verse 16. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now when he cleans it the second time, he quotes from the prophet that says, My father's house is to be a house of prayer. And then we begin to understand exactly what the problem was. The court of the Gentiles was set aside for Gentiles who feared God so they could come and pray. So they could have a place to put away all the things of the world and focus on God. But now, with the hub and bub of business being transacted, with people calling out, I got three sheep sheeps for a hundred, three oxen for five hundred here, trying to get business, there was no way to pray. The purpose of that court had been subverted in the name of greed. The problem was people couldn't pray. So Jesus cast them out. His passion was, was palatable. In fact, the disciples remember Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house will consume me. And what John writes here is, is a little bit of foreshadowing of what will come. That phrase, zeal for your house will consume me, that word consume can also be translated kill me. 
fact, John takes the next step and when he records what Jesus says about his death. Zeal for your house will kill me. Needless to say, the actions of Jesus got the attention of the Jews who oversaw the temple. Notice in verse 18, they ask him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, what authority? What right do you have? Notice they don't question the rightness or the wrongness of what he does. They don't say, Jesus, that was wrong. They say, okay, what authority are you doing this on? You see, Jesus had just upset things greatly. More than likely, the leaders of the temple were getting wealthy. Based upon manuscripts that have been found dating back to this period, what was happening was something like this. A merchant shows up. He's got his table to set up. Leaders meet him. You want to set up your table? We've got a great spot for you right over here. It'll just cost you a thousand shekels. A thousand shekels, that's your spot. You want to set up right there? That's 500. They were making a killing by charging people to set up their tables. And now that's over. Jesus answers their question. Destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. They think he's crazy. It had taken 46 years for where they were to be built and it still wasn't done. 46 years! You're going to tear it down if that could happen and rebuild it in three days? The disciples later understood exactly what Jesus was saying. Verses 21 and 22 are really the crux of this passage. He was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture, the word that Jesus had spoken. Verse 21 is really the crux of the matter. When Jesus clears the temple, he is saying a change is about to take place. The physical structure of the temple would not be crucial in faith anymore. It would be the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whereas this temple served three purposes. It served the purpose, one, of giving knowledge about God. If you wanted to understand who God was, you went to the physical structure of the temple. And there you learned that God is majestic. God is holy. You learned about who God is and what heaven was like. The earthly temple also was the locus point of God's presence. If you wanted to know the presence of God, you would experience it at the temple. Now, this should cause questions for us. If God is omnipresent, how can you say that His presence is located specifically at the temple? It's like this. If it were a sunny day and you walked outside, the light, as it were, would be omnipresent. The light would be everywhere. You would experience its illumination and its warmth. But suppose you took a magnifying glass and you held it up at a certain point. That light that is all around you becomes focused. And that focused light would become so intent that on a hot day when the sun is shining and the light's going through that one spot, it could literally set paper on fire. God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. But the temple was that one spot where His presence is magnified. To be there, you knew you were in the presence of God. So the temple is where you came to know about God. You experienced the presence of God. And true worship took place through sacrifice. When you came to the temple, you knew you could not go into God's presence unless sacrifice was made. 
Look at verse 21. Jesus says, the temple of my body. Now, if you want to know what God is like, you don't go to a physical structure. You look at Jesus, for He is God in the flesh. What you see Him do, you see God do. You see God's character in Him. If you want to experience the presence of God, you don't go to a place, you go to a person. Jesus is the local point, the focal point, the magnifying point of God's presence now. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one goes to the Father except through me. And if the temple was the place where true worship took place, now Jesus is saying, true worship doesn't take place in a building, it takes place in me. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, when he cleared the temple, it was something far greater than just casting people out. He was saying, the fulfillment of what the temple is about is here now. And it is Jesus. And if Jesus is the temple of God, and he is, and you and I are in him, and he in us, we become a temple of that's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, church, you are God's temple. Because you dwell in Christ through the Holy Spirit and Christ dwells in you. And what that means is this. The action that Jesus took here in turning over tables is replicated in our lives. Jesus will turn over tables in our lives so that you and I will know him. We shouldn't be surprised at that. If the temple was a place where you could meet God and worship Him and know Him and have a relationship with Him, understand that Jesus desires for you to walk with Him in a close, intimate relationship. We desire that in our relationships. When a husband and wife begin to have problems, and the wife realizes that the root of the problems is because her husband has been watching pornography. You recognize that relationship cannot be all it can be until the pornography has gone. Until that table's turned over. In the relationship with a father and his daughter, if that daughter continually lies to the father, that relationship cannot be all it can be because lies are there. So guess what has to happen? The table of those lies has to be turned over and gotten out of the way for the relationship to be made whole. How do you feel when a friend only comes to you and talks to you whenever he wants to borrow or she wants to borrow money? You would say, you're driven by greed in our friendship. If we're going to be friends, that greed has got to go. Church, you understand we are the bride of Christ. So if there is something in between our relationship with our Heavenly Father, our husband, that table's got to be turned over. We've been adopted into the family of God. He is our Father. If we are holding on to things that are displeasing to Him, that relationship's not going to be strong and pure in what it can be. That's got to go. We are friends of God. If there is something in that relationship that's hindering it, it's got to go. If we desire purity of relationships with one another, does God not desire that even more? And that's why even now, through the Holy Spirit, Jesus works to turn over tables in our lives. 
He does it in two ways. Conviction and consequence. Conviction of sin is like that moment when you have a splinter in your finger and the slightest touch makes it hurts. That's conviction. He brings conviction through His Word. The Word of God brings conviction into our lives so those tables can be turned over. We're going to go old school this morning. Turn over to the book of Hebrews for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 4. The Word of God is the tool that God uses to bring about conviction, the Bible. He uses it to make our relationships with Him strong. It comforts, but it also convicts. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. This, look at this description of the Word of God. For the Word of God is living and active. It's not a dead document. It's alive. It's active. Now look at the next description. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Sharper than a two-edged sword. Now a sword is not exactly an instrument for precision cutting. You can lop off an arm with a sword. But when you get down to what it's talking about here, dividing soul and spirit, dividing bone and marrow, you need something a little more precise. That's why I find it interesting that in ancient documents that word for sword is also translated scalpel. Like a surgeon. Read this verse like that. The Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged scalpel. It cuts finely, removing the things in our lives that need to be removed. Over the past few years, my family has become all too familiar with machines that allow one, a doctor, to see beneath the surface. X-ray, CT scan, MRI. The Bible's like that to our souls. It's a scalpel that cuts finely and precisely. Revealing the areas we want to keep hidden. Church, you understand that's why Satan wants to keep you from the Word. Anything he can do to minimize your interaction with the Bible is what he wants to accomplish. He wants to stop you from reading it in the morning because it's a scalpel that will bring healing to you. He wants to stop you from being serious about applying it because he wants you to continue living distant from God. That's what he does. But you know what? God is still at work in the lives of his children. Because even those moments where you give in to temptation and you put your Bible on your shelf, you still cannot escape the conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit. It's that voice that speaks to you strongly that says, No, don't do this. Matt Chandler is a pastor in Texas who gave a perfect illustration, I think, what the Holy Spirit does, a good illustration. Came downstairs one day and found his son sitting on the couch playing his Xbox. Now that would have been okay, except this. His son had been given the task of cleaning his room and then vacuuming the house. So as a good dad, Matt Chandler says, Son, put the Xbox up, you need to go clean your room and vacuum the house. 
Son says, okay, Dad, I'll do it, I'll do it. Turns everything off, goes upstairs. Matt Chandler says he starts to unload and load the dishwasher. So he's listening, okay? He's li- and as a parent, you know what that is. You're doing your thing, you're listening, you're listening. Then he hears the bedroom door shut and he hears the vacuum cleaner come on. Yes, he's doing it. Thank you, Lord. And the vacuum cleaner stays on for 45 seconds and then goes off. His son comes back downstairs and sits on the couch, turns on the Xbox. Matt Chandler says, I walk in there, say, son, did you vacuum the house? You can guess the answer. Yeah, I vacuumed the house. Son, Superman couldn't vacuum this house in 45 seconds. Let's go take a look. So he gets up with his son and they start walking through the house. It's not long until they come to this corner where there in the corner is an M- a bag that had the cracker goldfish spilled out of it and crushed. His son says, oh, I didn't see that. Well, if you were vacuuming the floor, guess what? You would have seen that. And then they proceed to go through the house. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. Lord, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's take a look at the house real quick. That's what the Lord does. He wants us to be in a close relationship with Him. You know what else the Lord uses to turn over tables? Not just conviction, but consequences. I think at times the Lord gives a measure of grace and we don't feel the full weight of the consequences of our sins. But I firmly believe the scripture is true when it says you reap what you sow. And I do believe there are times where we ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We ignore the Scripture. And then the Lord says, if this is what it takes to turn over that table, here are the consequences. You live in anger, no one's going to talk to you. You live a life filled with lust, your relationships will feel empty. You live a life full of lies, no one's going to trust you. You make these decisions that are contrary to my will. Here's the consequence. And so as a loving Heavenly Father, He says, this is what happens. All of us have experienced conviction and consequences. But you know what the most tragic thing is? Is this. When those tables are turned over, you and I walk around them. We bend over and we set them back up. Do you know why we do it? We do it for the same reason that the leaders of the temple let the tables in. We are convinced we will benefit from sin. We are convinced that sin will end up being a good thing. So when Jesus turns over the table, we agree with Him for a while, but then the lie comes up. No, no, if if you give in to that, it'll be good. It'll work out well. Sin never works out well it will kill you do you hear me it will destroy you it will destroy you spiritually it will destroy you physically it will destroy you mentally that is what the evil one desires and when we believe that that sinning will be a good thing and that's what Satan wants you to believe it will be a good thing turn that table over don't repent keep on your way just ignore what Jesus is doing don't you understand that he turns those tables over because he loves you 
The same reason that he gives to the temple leaders for clearing out the temple, his authority is the same reason he works in my life and your life. His death and resurrection. In his death, he demonstrates his love for us to say, I love you and I have redeemed you. You belong to me now. Leave behind the things that are from your former life. As Nathan preached from Colossians, put to death those things. Turn those tables over. Move them out. Why? I love you. And because of the resurrection, I'm telling you, there is something better for you there is life not just life forever and ever in heaven but life now life in the spirit so that where there is impurity there can be purity where there is anger there can be joy where there is anxiety there can be peace and it is found in the Lord Jesus that's why he turns over tables that's why at times we feel uncomfortable with the word it's because of love This morning I ask you, what tables? What tables has he turned over that you keep picking back up? What tables are there that he has come to to flip over and you've grabbed onto it and you're saying, no, Lord, not this one, not this one. I can't. No, no. Would you please trust him? And instead of fighting against him, come alongside your Savior and say, that's it. We rely on the Holy Spirit to do that. It's His work. Cooperate with Him. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me.